This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Gustavo Ferrer. Dr. Ferrer is an experienced pulmonologist, founder of the Cleveland Clinic, Florida Cough Clinic, and president of Intensive Care Experts. He's received several prestigious awards, including being named one of the best doctors in the U.S. by U.S. News & World Report, and also being named the Most Compassionate Doctor and the Patient's Choice Award Doctor. With Sounds True, Dr. Ferrer has written a new book called Graceful Exit, How to Advocate Effectively, Take Care of Yourself, and Be Present for the Death of a Loved One, where he offers a much-needed guide through the medical, legal, financial, emotional, and spiritual dimensions of dying and death. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dr. Ferrer and I spoke about death anxiety and how it feels when he walks into a room with a dying patient and the family is not at peace with the situation. And as a caring end-of-life physician, how he deals with that situation. We also talked about what people need to know in order to be organized and prepared to die and not be a burden on your loved ones. We also talked about the time Dr. Ferrer spent as a young medical student with the Waru Indians of South America and how he learned from them how to accept the inevitability of death and how to grieve in a group and fully. Finally, we talked about the importance of death conversations and how this can help us become clear about our legacy. Here's my conversation with the very kind Dr. Gustavo Ferrer. You're a pulmonologist who specializes in end-of-life care. And to begin our conversation, I want to talk about how you began your new book, graceful exit, the very first sentence of the book, which I thought was pretty startling. You write, every day, at least one of my patients die. Every day, at least one of my patients die. So here you connect with patients. You've received awards for the most compassionate doctor award, the patient's choice award. What's it like for you as a compassionate doctor to hear about the death of one of your patients every day or more? Tammy, that, that is an excellent question. I have, um, I can, I can tell you the patients that have been uh, followed by my team and myself for many, many months um, from the outpatient clinics that we see them and they go to the ICU and, and we see them going through through these final stages of life and they die is is basically losing a family. Uh, the doctors, we have such an incredible privilege that we can, we can get to know people in the most intimate things of their life and their families, and we become counseled. Uh, when we are in the ICU in hearing people issues and problems, and it's just like my own family, so um, I I feel that pain every single day, um, primarily when the patients are really close to 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 myself and to my team, we truly experience the uh, the pain of losing a family, and 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 it's, it's it doesn't change. Uh, but by the same token, uh, Tommy, I see this and I see my career. I love what I do. I have passion for helping people. I, I love to guide my patients and their family. And, and, and that is the part that gives me great satisfaction every single day. 
um, uh, my family can tell you that sometimes I get home and and it's like grieving somebody from my own family. Um, they, you, you go for those stages that you are sad and and uh, but um, you know I in myself my team we we practice um, breathing exercises meditation we talk of our patients' lives and those kind of things help us cope with uh, our daily life and and the things that our patients and family go through that regardless impact our lives. It seems that part of it is you would have to view your role as a helper differently than my job as a medical doctor is to help this person get better. I mean, here you are, you're a medical doctor that specializes in end-of-life care. To use my own language, in, in some ways you're more like a midwife for the dying process than a doctor who, in certain situations, is trying to create a cure. Well, you know, the, the terms and uh, end-of-life care uh, includes many specialties, includes a palliative care team, includes the uh, um, other specialty hospice that have come about. Uh, but my job as an intensivist, um, I think, has to go ha- has to be part of going beyond of just patient care. And just as you said, being more kind of a midwife, if we, if we go into those details and helping patients and family navigate these waters, because here's what happened in the intensive care unit when people are truly actively dying, uh, we depend in a lot of information from the families and friends. So we become right there and then a mediator between the patient that is in the bed and the family and friends that they're giving us information. So we need to gather pieces here and there. And the best way for any intensivist to do their job is to have in mind constantly that it's not just about helping that patient go through this process, but it's more than that. It's just keeping the whole family in the loop and continue to gather information that may benefit in bringing those patients um, back to recovery or prolonging some of their days or helping them have, as we titled the book, have a graceful exit. Now, you mentioned interfacing with different families. And one of the things you mention in the book is how so many families carry with them a large amount of what you call death anxiety. And that when a family comes in and there's a lot of death anxiety, you can sense that and that it can also make things more complicated than it needs to be. So tell me, how do you sense death anxiety in the family of someone who's dying? What does it feel like? Excellent question as well, Tommy. You know, when we see, when I walk into a patient room and and I have read the records before meeting the patient um, and and I review the history and I see that they have multiple medical problems and, and, and they've been coming in and out of the hospital multiple times. And and when I walk into the room and I uh, I face the family, you can, you, I can perceive that the family understand that they are facing um, the end. And how do I recognize that? Um, I think is this is one of the skills that doctors and people that do this kind of jobs develop by practicing over and over. But it's usually is is keeping aware of my surrounding, and and I I, I have the honor and the privilege of teaching doctors and and in in my fellowship training, and I tell them constantly and all the people that surround us that it's important to. To, to scan the room and see everybody that is in the room. Uh, when you're walking into a, a room where you have multiple family members and, and you can sense who is anxious, you see people moving from part to part. You can see it in their face that there is anxiety and, and there is um, there is the presumption that something not good is going to happen. And, and those are the people that need support. Those are the people that need to be informed. And those are the people that need to be engaged. How do you support them? 
I think the best thing that we can do in medicine um, overall today that we're living in, in, in this time of history that we are flying, that we're running and running, is to just pay attention to them listening. I think that this is a skill that we continue to lose um, in, in overall in medicine and many other areas, but in medicine in particularly. Um, listen, listening to them. Um, I cannot tell you, Tommy, how many times I have learned interesting stories that had to do nothing um, about uh, the patient disease process, but about that person. And, and, and there's nothing more beautiful to get to know those really interesting things that people have done in the past, that things that they have done to make this world better. And the families and friends are proud to share that with you. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we are running and running so fast that we don't pay attention to those moments that really bring, um, bring the opportunity for the family and friends just to verbalize, to open up and tell us their feelings. What's it like, Dr. Ferrer, when you walk into a room and there's a feeling that the family has made peace with the passage? Maybe you could tell me a story of, of a, a family like that. Oh, absolutely. In the book, I talk about a family. One of the families, actually, that taught me a lot about this. I, I landed um, fairly young as, an, as a critical care physician at the Cleveland Clinic Intensive Care Unit. And, and within the first week, I met a family that I still have like a fingerprint engraved in my mind, the picture of seeing what his the patient's wife, his two daughters in the room and and he he was on a breathing machine but he was aware of what was going on and the family was there with a computer with a laptop showing pictures, showing videos, laughing. Um I scanned the room and, and in the room uh, there were multiple cards from friends and family that he had uh, in, hung in the, in, 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 in the walls. And, and when I walk and, and I greet them, uh, you can see that they were suffering, but they were at peace. And uh, no anxiety, uh, no excessive stress. Um, I introduced myself and, and, and I told them, you know, a brief introduction of what we know was going on and what's going to be my job for the day and that week. And and I cannot forget seeing the two daughters and the wife coming along um, and getting closer to me. And they told me, you know, we understand what's going on. My father um, was a was a um, uh, a man that plan everything, and he had um, this moment already planned, and he told us that he does not want us suffering. The best legacy that he wants for himself was the legacy that the family remained um, together, united on his passing. And if he ever, he told them, if I ever get to the intensive care unit, um, this is what I want you to do. Bring videos. Show them. Show the doctors, nurses, and the people around us what kind of family, what kind of people we are. Uh, to me, that impacted me because I had never done that before, and I had never done that with my own family. Uh, but I, right there, I learned that when people have things organized and when they have come to uh, to understand their mortality. Um, of, of human beings and, and what is uh, to be at peace with your own death. Um, it is it is rewarding for the family. Something that is it, it cannot be explained. And to me, that changed me. Uh, from there on, I I look for that. I look for that understanding, and I get to know. I think it does, that patient in particular and many other patients taught me what Dr. Nelson Bell said many years ago in the 1930s. I put the quote in the book. He said, only those that they are prepared to die are ready to live. So uh, the only those that understand that this physical body should have an end um, are truly understanding um, that that life has limits and 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 that you have to plan and enjoy it and 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 live because you know that this has an end. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about 
those people who might be experiencing death anxiety, I notice when I just think about your profession as a pulmonologist, just when I, when I hear that word, pulmonologist, I feel a certain level of anxiety because that means, oh, he's the guy who comes in when your breathing is at risk and you might stop breathing and that will be the end. And, I, you know, I just imagine so many people when you're talking about their loved one, their spouse, it could be an elder parent, but it could be something like a child. Of course, they're going to feel racked in some way. The pulmonologist is here in the critical care unit. How do you talk to each of these people? You mentioned that you listen, but what kinds of statements can you make or questions can you ask to help people in that situation? I I usually tell me walk into a patient room and 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 again my first wording there is the introduction so that people know um my my job and my responsibility and and the next question that I ask Tommy is not what I uh, or is not telling them what I know, is scanning around the room and see who is the person that will answer my question because my next um, my usually my first question to the group is is who is helping um, this uh, this gentleman this lady make decision, and, and when I identify the person I go and ask her you know do you understand. Um, what's going on? Uh, what are the uh, what is what are what is your understanding of the situation? Um, and and right there and then I discover um, if they really understand the whole history, how involved um, they have been with the doctors, or how the doctors have been able to explain until that point um, whatever uh, was happening. And the reason that I do that now, Tommy, I can tell you that many years ago, when I began this 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 journey of being an intensivist and a pulmonologist back home in Cuba, that wasn't the way that I I faced my patients. I will, I walk into the room and I told them, you know, um, this is my name, and I gave them an introduction of what we knew um, then about the patient. And I see this, Tommy, today over and over everywhere I go in the country. People go quickly, doctors and providers go quickly to tell the families and, and, and friends uh, um, or whosoever is responsible to tell them what they think. And, and, and we do not spend time asking what they know. So my first interaction with the families to let them verbalize what they know. And, and from there, the conversation has been in trying to fill in the gap and trying to identify um, areas where where I have the opportunity to to show them my humanity and uh, to show them compassion, um, to 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 tell them or to show them that we are there for them, that we are our job is to help, our job is to guide, and uh, and no question should not be left uh, unanswered. Um, so we are open to listen whatever they have in their minds, and I go, and that's the reason I dream about writing this book many years ago, because sometimes I, I, when I open that kind of interaction, my patients come up with questions, do you know? Um, you know, my family is about to die or is in the dying process. Um, what are the steps that we're going to do after this? When it goes to a funeral home, where is gonna, the body is going to go? What's, what are the things that we have to do? And, and, and as I worked and I did this over and over, I realized that it was a gap there in my knowledge because I was stopping just in medical advice and I did not pay attention to the 360-degree picture of that person in that situation. Let's talk some about what people need to know to be prepared. And this is a big focus of your book, Graceful Exit. Let's start with the person who wants to be prepared to die. 
and it may not be all of our listeners, but let's talk about our own death. I want to be prepared to have a peaceful death and not leave a mess for my loved ones and not leave all these gaps for my loved ones to sort through. What are the most important actions that a person can take? I will group it in, in three or four, or four categories. I think uh, there is a category that deserves attention, which is our personal on um, financial. And I'm going to start there because this is an area uh, where almost everything that we're going to be talking is going to be ending up on that. Um, so I I think it is important if we are going to plan when it comes to the financials and and uh, two things. Uh, we need to keep in mind if if you are an adult living today in America that you are 40 years or older, 40 to 60, um, there is um, one in three chances that you're going to be taking care of somebody else in their 80s or 90s. So first, financially, you need to help your, your loved one in that. Second, as we grow in understanding our own mortality, I need to plan my own death. And, and financially, that means I need to understand what are the things that I, I need to spend some time in, 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 in thinking about my last day, um, thinking what kind of funeral uh, do I want? Do I want uh, cremation or not? Um, those are questions that are really hard. Most people don't think about them, don't even entertain the opportunity of planning them. But they are so crucial. Um, the reason that I began right, I began right there, Tom, is because financials tear apart families after the death of any loved one that has not planned that. So the funeral, what kind of funeral they're going to have, what kind of burial they, we're going to have, all that has tremendous financial implications. And I think it is important that we think about those. Uh, if I move it for a, a little a little bit back, I will say that it is also important for the people that are in their 60 to think about long-term care insurance. It's becoming extremely popular today, and the reason that I said so is because um, there is there is one in six chances that we are going to get into a long-term care facility in after the age of 65 in the next 10, 15 years, meaning in their 70s to 80s. And that is not covered by any health insurance today in our country. And, and it's a financial stress that many families faces today. And, and that implies when we do this kind of insurance, um, thinking is, uh, you know, what kind of care do I want? Do I want that at home or do I want that in skilled nursing? Because all that has a tremendous, tremendous uh, financial implication. If we move a little bit um, going back into the financials, I think it's important that we, we think about um, uh, our legacy. What kind of legacy we, we want to leave behind? Um, the, the word legacy is, is a word that most people think about, um, people that have done extraordinary things in life and have created things that change human history. But the truth is that we all have a legacy that we're writing as we speak. And, and we all need to think about that. What kind of legacy I'm going to leave to my loved one? Is going to be a legacy that is organized and planned? Um, and, or is a legacy that going to have um, a lot of disaster after that? So thinking about the legacy, organizing our financials, organizing our funeral are very important step. And if we move it a little bit more into um, the time that when we are facing any health crisis and we end up in the intensive care unit, it is extremely important that we looked into what are the wishes of what kind of treatments and, and what kind of things I, I willing, I'm willing to accept in order to survive or, or what are the things that I'm not willing to accept. Um, and I'm speaking specifically in, in, in the so-called legally called advanced directive where um, we need to determine and it's an individual decision uh, whether 
I want the the CPR, the chest compressions, to be done to me uh, or not. Um, this is something that I, I explain carefully in the book because even in the medical community, Tommy, there's a lot of a lot of misconception. And 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 the and and the the so-called advanced directive, it's not clear, and and it's not um, universally clear. Meaning every single state has a different set of rules. But I tell my patients, forget about the rules, forget about what the document says, um, focus more on your witches. Um, if you know that you are critically ill, that you're terminally ill, and the chances of surviving, regardless of what the medical community can do, are limited or minimal. And any intervention, what we'll do is prolonging uh, suffering. Um, Would you like to live like that? Those are questions that we all need to ask. You write in the book, Graceful Exit, End-of-life wishes should be as common as sharing what's on your Christmas wish list. And I thought, well, I'm sure that is not the way it is for most people. And this was a plea that you make in the book. Our end-of-life wishes should be as common as sharing what's on our Christmas wish list. So when I hear you, Dr. Ferrer, going through all of these preparations, being clear about our advanced directives, being clear about our our will in the funeral, I think most people have resistance to that. They're like, you know, I'm not going to die till I'm 90. I don't really want to deal with it when I'm a young person. One of the things you write in the book is that even people in their 20s, you think, should make sure to be prepared in this way. So what do you think is the source of our collective resistance? I'll go so far as to say refusal to be prepared like this. I believe, and, 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 I'm, and this is something that I, I'm, I'm in the process of actually doing some research about it, that it has some, uh, it, there is a history behind all this, predominantly in America. Because the phenomenon that we see in America, the total, uh, I would agree with you, there is a refusal to talk about this topic. Um, uh, is, a, is a very much uh, uh, something engraved in the human heart. But in America, uh, there is um, there's history that tells us that in the early 1800, um, speaking about legacy, witches, and, and the trust, people created those legal documents that still exist, um, was part of the uh, dinner table. People spoke about this openly. Um, I was able to review books written in the early 1800 looking into this topic, and, and, and it's fairly well documented that there was, um, the history tells us that it was fairly common to speak about death and planning and burial. In, in, in the early 1800, people actually choose the place that they want to die, and uh, many times they even wrote the family name before people die. Um, somehow, when when the industrial revolution came about, and, and and medicine became so advanced in the last 60, 70 years, uh, we, the healthcare provider in America, have engraved in the population that we can do uh, extraordinary miracles. And I put that in the book. I have seen my own share of incredible miracles, even in my own family. But that doesn't have, doesn't have to take away the understanding that life is limited. And my plea to the people is because, Tommy, I see the aftermath many times. I see people coming back to my office months and years after devastated. Uh, Tommy, I'm going to tell you just... 15 minutes before I came for I came to my office to to have this conversation with you I saw one of my beloved patients that I have followed her for about 6 years and I follow her husband as well um she stopped coming to the office 3 months ago and, and and my team called her about a month ago and she made an appointment she made an appointment and she show up today in 3 months she has lost 20 plus pounds she's in her late 70s and and she come telling us that her husband died 3 months ago and uh, she was telling us the whole 
appointment was speaking about the aftermath, the devastation of going through the ICU, not having things planned, um, the financial stress, and the, all the things that she went through. Um, it was all because they did not plan this process. And, and as we as a nation um, get uh, our life expectancy increases, uh, the more we're going to see people with multiple medical problems getting to the 80s and 90s and 70s. And, and the more the populations grow, uh, car accidents still there uh, for most, uh, for, for young people, uh, you know, natural disasters are going to come and things are going to happen, accidents. This is life. And, and it can happen not just to the elders, but it can happen to the young people. In my book, I put example of people that I have seen that they didn't plan and went to an island to do a research and came back with an infectious process, and, and all of a the sudden they are facing life and death. No plan, nothing organized. Who is taking care of the things that people really love? You know, people, I have patients tell me that I, in, 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 in her in their thirties, critically ill, dying, and they're worried about their dogs and their pets that they're gonna leave behind. Those are the things that they treasure. And we, whosoever is the family of that patient, should pay attention to that. And uh, but we all need to organize that. What's gonna happen with um, with our family, with our friends? And and I believe that once we do this process, Tammy, and have our things planned and organized. I life gain a different meaning and 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 we're free to explore free to live and and that is my plea my 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 call to the population is please have it organized please sit and talk to your family and I went to the stream of asking to do it just as your christmas list is because um uh, the christmas list people or whatever holiday people celebrate and give gifts, a um, few months after, they will totally forget what they got and the value of that will disappear. But the list of things that we need to put in order before dying are things that will have an impact for many years to come and will have an impact in, in the generation that follows. Because if, if if we do it right, I have testimonial videos coming out with my book of people that compare the family that follow the principles in our book versus the in, in their own family, people that did not. And, and they can see all the devastation and all the issues that they are around that. But they also verbalize in their testimonial that the person that had things organized taught in an incredible lesson to the younger generation. So, you know, we come up every day with new technologies and, and in medicine, and we need to prepare our people to face the end. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, Dr. Ferrer, you have made a very, very compelling case that each one of us should get organized around our inevitable death. To be honest with you, it's not the first time I've heard this case. And I think many people have had the thought, yeah, I really should do that. I really should figure out my medical power of attorney thing. I should really get my will in shape. I should really write down my wishes. I think I'll do that. Uh, I'll do it over the holidays. I'll do it next year. I'll do it when we're on vacation in six months. It's this thing we 
delay, we procrastinate. Talk to the procrastinator. How can you motivate them? I know you just tried and you did a, you made a compelling case, but people, we procrastinate. That's what people do. Yes, I think so too. I think we all procrastinate and we leave uh, everything for tomorrow. Uh, but my my calling to everybody that is listening and everywhere I go, um, if you're listening to our conversation today, if you come across your email, your mailbox, and your Twitter account or whatever place, I tell people, do it today. Just put down some ideas, um, come up with a plan, and 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 the way that we're um, we're putting our graceful exit book together is because we want to engage um, the the caregivers. And if you are taking care of anybody, um, 65 and older, it is important to know that there is about 80% chances that they're going to be lingering around the system. 80%. It is an interesting statistic. You know, we know that most people said, I want to die just in like that in two seconds. But the reality is that only 10% or less than 10% die like that. And the great majority um, linger around the system, the hospital, the nursing home, the skilled nursing facility. I would say to the people that are listening, if you're taking care of um, anybody, um, do an out, help them. And in that process, I'm fairly convinced that you will come to the conclusion that it's important that you too um, make a decision. How to start? I tell my patients that if you uh, and, and the loved one, the caregivers, uh, call your siblings and if or your friends or whosoever is going to be your group support and um, and put together a tea or coffee or cookies and or dinner your home and bring your family and and talk. Um, about this. There's no an easy way to start. Nothing more than say, you know, we need to organize this because this will happen regardless. Will happen. The only way to have things less stressful and more economically sound, it is by sitting and facing this reality. And And in our campaign, Tommy, we're going after all the caregivers, because the caregivers are going to be responsible for the things that we're not planning. And that's the reason we're going to target them. I think historically, we have been going after everybody, and we all procrastinate. But the people that they're responsible for taking care of somebody else today, they are in the battle, and they need to face it. So that's the reason we're going um, after and helping the people engage as a caregivers today. And how would you make a compelling case to a young person, say someone who's in their 20s or early 30s, and they're like, gosh, you know, I don't have very much money, not a big deal in terms of a will. What's the point? I mean, I'm, I'm young. Well, Ah, that's fantastic. I, you know, I had a presentation with a bunch of medical students um, years ago, and, and I put up uh, this story of one of our, our med students um, that I have spoken with um, this gentleman uh, at the end of the day on a Friday. And, and and he was telling me that he was about to start medicine. He was in a, his undergrad. I had met him in the hospital. He was a laboratory technician, something like that. And and he just had into, uh, was accepted into med school. Life was unfolding. He was 22 years old. He had a wife that was pregnant. Life was unfolding beautiful in front of his eyes. Um, that day, he... Um, left the parking where we were talking, and he was heading home Friday night. He, um, he, he told me all, all the things that he wanted to study and, and, and the things that he wanted to do and the things that he was planning for his family. Next day in the morning, I walk into my ICU, intensive care unit, and he was there, brain dead. He was heading home in his motorcycle, and he was hit by another car. Brandon, he has a wife, he has 
he had no money, and things were not organized. We went through a week of a lot of stress with the family and friends and trying to organize things. And um, that made me realize that that can happen to anybody. So I, I did a presentation on what I did. I I put a slide in my PowerPoint presentation, one of those bubble heads without, without face. And I talk about this patient and I put the slides and said, you know, that could be you. Um, my calling for the young people is to at least have a next of kin, have somebody that will make decision for you. If you don't want to think or spend time thinking about your advanced directive and the things that you need to plan because, you know, financially or whatever reason, it's not the time in your life, but at least you should have somebody that will help them make decision, and they need to know. Um, I'm conducting a research today, Tammy, where we ask healthcare professionals if they have an advanced directive, and 60-plus percent of them, they say no. Mm. And, 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 and that is the people that they are talking out there with our patients and family about advanced directives. 60-plus wow. percent of them, they don't have it. So it's kind of the doctor's blind spot um, as well. It's all of our so, blind spot, I think. Yes. So I tell them, you know, at least let's begin with let's begin with just having somebody that will help them make decision, mm-hmm. and they clearly understand what are the things that you stand for and your witches. Just begin there, mm-hmm. and I, I think all of us should have that. Mm-hmm. Now, Doctor Ferrer, we started our conversation talking about how. You sit at the bedside of so many dying individuals such that maybe one person dies a day in your care. That's how much experience you have with people who are in the dying process. And one of the things I'm curious to learn about is what have you learned from being at the bedside of these individuals? I have learned my number one lesson that I have learned from being at the bedside of my patient is to understand that all of them have an incredible thing to tell you. If not the family or friends or the patient itself, they have done extraordinary things that they are wonderful for humanity. Um, I have learned that because I was... Once, Tommy, I was um, I was very much involved in running and running and just going to, to from one patient to the other one. And I put that story there in my book, uh, where I uh, I took care of uh, of a patient and we helped him through an infectious process. And but he was in his nineties, and and I was oblivious to my surroundings, and 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 I just want to do my job as a doctor. And period. And and I totally neglected an elderly lady that was in the room. And that patient lady, when he improved, his wife, the patient's wife, when he, the patient improved and, and he was ready to go out of the intensive care unit, um, she called me and she made me sit down and talk to her. And the first question that she asked me was, um, do you know my husband? And I said, well, I know his name, his age. Do you know my husband as a human being? I'm sorry, but you know, it's been a short time. He said, "Well, you never ask." And and from there, she went on to tell me that she was a retired critical care nurse of 40 plus years. Her husband was a very well recognized um, cardiothoracic surgeon in his town, and and she went on to tell me all the extraordinary things that they have done in Africa and many other places. And and I did not take the time to ask them about them as a human being. So I have learned that I need to ask questions to my patients and family about them. I have learned that I have to think like them and and, and, and think about the emotions that they're going through before I phrase any question or make any comment regarding the condition. I have learned above all, Tommy, that I have to sit many times and just listen because we don't have the answer, but just listen to them. 
Dr. Ferrer, I'm ready to sign you up as my doctor. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Now, one of the things you talked about in Graceful Exit is how across the board, people feel the same type of regrets at the end of their life. And you put these regrets into two categories. One is time wasted away from family and friends, not spending enough time with our family and friends. And then the other category of regrets that you wrote about is not having followed a calling, some type of fear of failure. Beyond these two big categories of regrets, what, what other regrets do you hear people talking about at the time of their dying process, when they're in the dying process? In, in the dying process, I, I, uh, the, the other category that I hear, Tammy, is the category of the caregivers, the families and friends. Um, the uh, and and it, and it goes and evolves around the same thing. I wasn't there for the birthday. I wasn't there for um, for the funeral of friends and family. I wasn't there with my dad or my mom for this event. I should have made time to be there in their anniversary on uh, honeymoon, you know, wedding or whatever. Um, uh, it, it goes back to. The basics, Tommy. It goes back to uh, most regrets are linked to emotions, and emotions are driven by a human interaction. That that need that we all have to be close to the people that loves us and we love. That is what most people verbalize as regret. And the other goes um, into the mission that people have when they come to this planet. Um, didn't fulfill this dream, didn't go after this. And the, and, and the third one, which is fairly common, is also the category of the bucket list. Most people, and, and there's an interesting study published about three months ago, um, that most people have a bucket list. Most people today have a dream, um, something that is not related to family, something that is not related to work. Um, places that they want to go is the number one. You know, things that they want to do is number two. Those are things that people have in 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 their own backpack and and they're carrying those things around and and people would love to do them would love to plan for them and and I guess because going back to your prior comment we procrastinate we then um tend to yeah. not do them now dr ferrer here knowing these regrets I imagine that you could be as busy as you want to be in Miami, Florida, with the credentials that you have and the level of acclaim that you've received as a doctor. You could be busy 100 hours a week. Have you managed, because I know you have a family, to prioritize time with your family and friends, or is that hard for you? I know many doctors are, are really very, very busy people. I I have now. I can tell you, Tommy. I have now. Um, at one point in my life, um, I I was uh, um, you know I'm busy. Don't get me wrong, but I was extremely busy um, about ten years ago, um, and I was uh, academically in my career. I was really close to the peak of. Um, great momentum in the things that I was doing. Um, and I got home one day, Tommy, and we all need this kind of wake-up call. I got home one day. The Saturday morning, I, I returned from, from a trip. Uh, and, and when I opened the door, uh, um, my, young, my daughter, um, she told me, Daddy, we don't see you anymore. And... Uh, and that really, really made me think um, and made me plan and put my things in perspective and in order. And um, and I went on after that, Tommy, and, and, and I learned 
that I have to say no to many things and, and no to, to people that I don't want to. And I was saying way too much uh, yes and taking a lot of things that I shouldn't and, and not realizing that there is 24 hours in a day and, and we always want to do extraordinary things, but uh, we have to have uh, priorities. Um, and I have the most incredible wife because she never complained about those things. And uh, but we together made the decision to to um, move on. And I resigned from that position that I was working, and uh, and reprioritized my life. Um, still today, I have days that I work a lot and days that I work less. But I keep that in my perspective, Tommy. Um, I keep my priorities very well thought through and organized. And my family, my wife, they know that um, I can have a very long day, but I will make my very best um, and I will be there the next day and try to make every moment that we spend together an incredible time. And, and, and we try to do that. We fight against um, the things that rub our time together, against the cell phones, the, uh, the, uh, the TV. And, and we're trying to really, really work together as a family so that we can create really, really good memories. Beautiful. There's a chapter of the book, Graceful Exit, that was very meaningful to me. The The chapter is called Grieving, Letting Go, and Acceptance. And in that chapter, you write about what you learned during a period of time when you were a medical student and you were working with the Waru Indians of South America and how much you learned from them about letting go and releasing emotions. And I wonder if you can share some of that with our listeners. Oh, absolutely. I, I had that incredible privilege. I spent um, over a year um, in the Orinoco River, in, in the jungles of the Orinoco River, living with those tribes and doing some uh, research with the United Nations University. Um, my team... Uh, people had doctors, nurses, and anthropologists. And, and, and what I learned from the native Indians in the Arinaco uh, was that um, they have lived, Tommy, in such an incredible simplicity for thousands of years around the river. They are, they are, this is a community, one of the few communities that never evolved into planting anything. They are gatherers, which is, the number one thing that people have done in through history. So they never evolved into planting and anything like that. The the, the jungle is so rich in 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 um, fish and animals and vegetables, and they live out of that, and they have lived out of that for a thousand years. So these people have a great interaction with nature. Number one, and number two, um, a lot of family interaction. And, and that simplicity, when I saw them grieving somebody that died, they, it, it was a family event. It was a community event. It was something that was suffered by everybody. And, and that truly impacted me. Because right after that, I came to this incredible country. And I began to study and I went to redo my internal medicine rotation. My first rotation ever in America was in the critical care. I think God plans that for me. And I landed in that intensive care unit and, and, and I saw a lot of people without anybody. And, and, and I saw the disconnect between us and, 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 and the caregivers and the doctors and everybody. And, and and that really struck me. And and I was going back over and over and I still do it. I mean I dream about my days over there. It was an incredibly beautiful interaction between people and 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 the the nature, the creative nature there. And it sounds like in general, if we were to just make a cultural generalization that the Waru didn't suffer from the same kind of death anxiety 
that you see Western people suffering from in the face of a loved one dying. Do you think that's true? That's absolutely true. I think that's a great summary because, uh, you know, they don't have the technologies, the hospital, the, um, the machines. Is that they accept death, and we do not. And what do you think we could learn from them in terms of that acceptance? What do they know that could help us? Is it because they know how to grieve in a different kind of way? I think they know the life is terminal. They know that uh, um, you know they don't they don't have any experience with a hospital technology that can prolong life or suffering or whatever way we want to call it. So um, they have learned that life is terminal and and grieving is part of life, and 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 that they have passed from generations to generations. So I believe that what we can learn is. Um, this is a topic that we don't have to talk about this every day if we don't want to, but it's a topic that should be a common conversation in, in between friends and family, um, understanding that grieving is part of life and death is part of life. There's a quote from Graceful Exit. You write, my belief is that the more we allow ourselves to talk about death, and to treat it as part of life, the more naturally we will respond to the inevitability of it. So here we are we're in a culture yep. where we don't, in general, we don't talk about death that much. And, you know, and if you do, people think you're morbid or, you know, an over planner or, or something like that. So what I'd be curious about, Dr. Ferrer, is what's your vision for a culture that is so comfortable talking about death that we're prepared for it. What does that look like? I think that would look like, again, we're not going to be, uh, it's not going to be perfect, but I think my dream with beginning this journey of writing this book and planning for some others is to, to create a culture that when we talk about death, we also talk about legacy. And when we talk about death and we talk about legacy, then we start thinking about the things that we do. And we're going to be thinking also about planning better because the two are going to go together. And when we plan better and we think about death and we think about our legacy, we think about what things we're going to be, we are teaching as we go to the rest of the people around us. We all have 20, 30 people, most people. There are other people that have thousands and millions of people that they impact with their actions. So, but if we go to the simplicity, to the 70, 80% of the population that can impact 20 people, if each of us talk to the people that we love the most and we tell them, this is inevitable, this is something that will happen, these are the financial, the medical, and the pain consequences that you can avoid, I think we're going to be facing a society that will take more responsibilities of their thing, the things that they do. We're going to have a society that is going to be more comfortable managing healthcare-related issues, and we're going to have a society that is going to be using better the resources that we're giving to us. We are, we are, uh, Tommy. This is something that is really engraved in my heart. I'm coming from from a country that uses one third of the the money that we use for a person, we can cover 250,000 people in my country as a, as a health care. I just can't imagine how many great things we can do if we use the resources that we're giving to us better and how many people we're going to be able to bless around the planet. A final question for you, Dr. Ferrer. What's your thinking planning around your own legacy? I, I want to be a physician. I'm a doctor. I love what I do. I, I want my friends and my family to remember me as a, as a doctor that um, focuses on people and helping others. Um, my goal in this life is to help as much people as I can. And uh, when I die, that's what I want pe people to say about me. 
I don't want people to say anything about me um, financially or anything like that. My focus is to help others as much as I can. I've been speaking with Dr. Gustavo Ferrer. What a beautiful doctor and human you are. I feel so lucky to have had this conversation with you. I feel your care and your tenderheartedness. Thank you so much. Dr. Gustavo Ferrer is the author of the book Graceful Exit, How to Advocate Effectively, Take Care of Yourself, and Be Present for the Death of a Loved One. Thank you so much for being on Insights at the Edge. Thank you, Tommy. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. And go ahead and get all those documents done. Get them done now. Go ahead, get them all done.